Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you um, all for coming. This uh, Stephen Wise is our second uh, speaker in the uh, writing uh, the World series, and we're really, um, really honored to have him here at NYU um, Abu Dhabi. He's known, as most of you know, as uh, a world-renowned animal rights lawyer who's been on the forefront of this cutting-edge and often controversial fight um, to obtain legal personhood uh, for a non-human, non-human, and uh, he'll be talking a lot tonight about what that means exactly and how he argues it and all the permutations therein and of. Um, uh, but the truth is, is Stephen really meant to be a rock and roll um, lead singer uh, in a band, and uh, that still is dream. It's been sidetracked by his <laughs> present pursuits of the last 30 years. But he grew a conscience, and um, not that rock and roll singers don't have consciences, but uh, uh, decided to become a lawyer in Boston and on behalf of humans and human welfare. And then he read a book uh, by Peter Singer called Animal Liberation, which many of you may know. And um, it changed everything. Uh, for Stephen and potentially for the world's animals. Um, he's been fighting the fight for like over 30 years now. And it's asserting an argument that, as you have admitted, has gotten you laughed or barked out of many a courtroom, uh, which happened in the past, too, with this kind of case when it was done um, centuries earlier. But... What Stephen does that's singular, aside from his grasp of, great grasp of the law, is he wields what earlier people who might have attempted something like this never had at their disposal, which is science. And that's changed everything about the way we talk about non-humans. And it's allowed us to talk in a way, legally or creatively, in a way we've never been able to talk before, because now no one can say to you, you're being an anthropomorphic idiot. Now you can say, if you're saying it creatively in writing or if you're saying it to a judge, but there is just hard evidence here that these are beings with higher, with a whatever humans call higher cognitive um, uh, consciousness, uh, qualities that we've always accorded only to ourselves um, wrongly. He's, Stephen's, part of his genius is that he points out to judges who are very reluctant <laughs> to even hear this, that, no, no, this is what we know now, so how do we deal with it? And he's trying to get judges um, to accord with knowledge, and that disjunct is the one he's trying to cross. But it's, it's, it's great of him to be able to not just know the law, but to bring the scientific facts in and make a judge think twice. And as Stephen is, I, I, I knew Stephen before I knew him, uh, ever met him, 
And I'll tell you how. We both saw our first chimp in the wild um, in the same, at different times, in the same uh, rainforest in Uganda. Um, so I guess we were brothers uh, of, an, of an accord. Um, but when I did finally meet him in Manhattan over lunch, uh, where I started to get my legal education because I know nothing about the law, um, uh, you know, he told me this is going to be a long, long battle. Uh, it's going to go by increments. And uh, I'm willing to fight it for the rest of my life, and maybe someone will pick up the torch. The thing is, is, um, and what he's trying to do is just get a judge somewhere to move across that staunchly defended boundary between sentient us and sentient non-us. And it's a big, big boundary. But he told me, you know, it's going to take maybe my, it's going to take, could take my life, time, and then someone else's. And the press, you know, just writes about Stephen's cases as you've won or you've lost. And so far he's lost in the press, ostensibly. But he's won an amazing amount of incremental advances already, uh, which people don't pay attention to, and the press tend not to pay attention to. And by that I mean, this is the man, the first man to get a chimp to sue its owner, his owner, excuse me, it's his, that never happened before. He's also the first person to get a judge in Manhattan to issue um, under the statute of the writ of habeas corpus, which um, makes the cap door of a being uh, come and defend why they can keep keeping it. That never happened before with a non-human. And more, more recently in Argentina, um, lawyers using Stephen's work got the first ever grant of a successful grant of the writ of habeas corpus and a chimp got released and at least released to a sanctuary that was not the horrible zoo this chimp had been in. So this is happening um, and he's making it happen. Um, and, you know, everyone said it couldn't have, but, you know, I've come to believe more and more that it, this, is, this, this boundary is going to be crossed and uh, that you'll be making history. So Stephen Wise. <laughs> <clears throat> Can people see me here, or do I need to uh, ascend to the stage? If you want to ascend. Oh. Uh, let's see. <laughs> How's that? Is that? Okay, great. Well, thank you, Charles. Uh, I got to know uh, Charles well uh, as he, uh, he followed me and my merry band of uh, civil rights lawyers who focus on the coming civil rights of non-human animals uh, around... Uh, the state of New York and, and, and other places over a period of, of, uh, of three or four years. And uh, uh, I got to, he was, he was, he's a great writer. I had lovely conversations with him. It, it was very interesting uh, because um, he was part of not only, not only the merry band of, of civil rights lawyers, but um, as those who were here last night know, uh, the documentary filmmakers D.A. Pennybaker and Chris Hedges were also following us around and made a, uh, a film that, um, that uh, debuted at the Sundance Film Festival last year in 2016, uh, has been playing at uh, film festivals and theaters around the world, and then uh, premiered on HBO two weeks ago in, in, 
in the U.S. So uh, there's been a, a lot of people who have, have seen uh, what, what we are doing, and uh, a lot of it in, is because of the film, and a lot of it is because uh, four months after we filed our first lawsuits, uh, we showed up on the, on the cover of the Sunday New York Times magazine, thanks to, to uh, Charles Siebert, who's, who's really a, a, a super, super writer. And luckily, he's a super writer. Penny Baker and Hedgedis are super filmmakers, so uh, they just kind of you know, made me look good. So, uh, so thank you for that, Charles, and Penny, Chris, uh, as well. So indeed, in December 2013, the Non-Human Rights Project uh, filed three lawsuits uh, throughout the state of New York. Um, one was uh, from west to east. One was on behalf of Kiko, who was a chimpanzee, who was in a, in a cage in a, in a cement storefront in Niagara Falls. One was in the middle, uh, in uh, Gloversville, in central New York, uh, on behalf of Tommy, who was a lone chimpanzee again, uh, who was uh, in a room in a kind of a warehouse-like structure uh, and on a used trailer lot. So we, we, uh, we, we filed that suit. And then we, moving east, east again, we then filed suit on, on behalf of uh, uh, two chimpanzees named Hercules and Leo, who were being used in experimentation at Stony Brook University. Um, they were two little guys. They were eight years old then. They had been taken from their, from their, their family when, when they were two, and they were being used in really frivolous ways. They were kept in a cage. They were kept away uh, from other chimpanzees. They were, I believe they were in the basement of a computer building at Stony Brook. And the uh, anatomists, it was the Department of, uh, of Anatomy, uh, those uh, folks had noticed that chimpanzees walk with... Uh, with bent legs, humans walk with straight legs, and so they were going to uh, imprison these chimpanzees for six years and, and do experiments on them uh, so they could figure out how humans uh, evolve straight legs and chimpanzees evolve uh, bent legs. Now, uh, I'm not anti-science. I happen to have a degree in chemistry, in fact, uh, but it infuriated us to see that uh, these scientists uh, really viewed them as their instruments, as their slaves, as their things, that they could do whatever they wanted with them. And that, that included taking these little guys from, from their families and, and doing that. And also, by the way, putting them under general anesthesia about once a month for year after year after year. Uh, it's really kind of ugly stuff. Uh, so, so those were our four chimpanzees petitioners as of 2013. So we filed, what, what we did is we filed a, uh, a common law writ of habeas corpus on behalf of the chimpanzees in New York State. And what I want to talk about is, is, is how that happened, why, why we did that. Uh, there were uh, hundreds and hundreds of tactical and strategic decisions that, that were made by by myself and the kind of the growing group of, of uh, folks who work for the non-human non rights project. And uh, let me start, uh, first of all, with um, the common law. Uh, frankly, I don't even know what kind of law uh, they have here in, in Abu Dhabi. Uh, I do know it's not the same that I operate under in the United States. And uh, we operate under Anglo-American Anglo common law principles. And so what, what that means is that, is that in, in a common law country, as opposed to a civil law country, Napoleonic law country, who derived their law from Roman law, uh, that judges are very, very powerful 
in common law countries, and they make the law. They actually make the law. In the process of deciding cases, they, they set out general legal principles that uh, accrue over, over you know, years or decades or centuries. And much of the law that, that, that we use is really common law. So the whole idea, for example, of what's a contract, what's a breach of contract, that's common law. Judges have made it. Uh, if someone runs you down in, in, in a car and you sue them for negligence, that's a common law idea. Uh, intentional torts are all common law ideas. And more and more statutes have, have been passed over the last uh, century or so, but still the, there's, there's a lot of common law. And every state, all 50 states within the United States are common law states except for Louisiana, which was settled by the French, and still uses a lot of French civil law. So, and, and then we have, we have a federal system. Uh, you may have heard, you may have seen that uh, Donald Trump's attempt at keeping Muslims out of the United States. I can't, spit, I can't talk about him without trying to figure out, okay, what should I say? So I figured uh, I won't say anything. Uh, and, uh, uh, he, his, um, his ban was struck down as unconstitutional by, by three federal judges in our, in our Ninth Circuit in, in the West. And they're not common law judges. Uh, they don't, there isn't really a federal common law. Uh, they interpret statutes and, and constitutions and international treaties. Common law judges at the state level do that as well. But they do that something extra is that they actually make the law. So or they make some law. So when we were trying to figure out, like, where, where do we file suit? Uh, we decided that we would file suit in a common law jurisdiction. So that meant not Louisiana, and it meant not, not in the federal courts. And the reason is, is that the idea that all non-human animals are, are legal things, and I'll talk about that in, in a minute, is really, was really made by common law judges in England a long time ago. And U.S. judges do the, do the same thing, have, have the same, same ideas. Uh, so we, we wanted to go in front of judges and say, you know, you, meaning you judge or your predecessor judges, you were the ones who made the common law rule that all non-human animals are legal things. So that means you made it, you can unmake it. So we didn't want judges interpreting, say, the word person, and I'll talk about that in, in a second, in that was in a statute or a constitution, and try to uh, decide whether or not when a legislature used the word person, did they mean, say, a chimpanzee or a whale or an elephant? Because we felt certain that that judge would say no. And uh, in fact, we, yeah, we are entirely certain that, that the judge would say no. So we didn't want a judge interpreting what some other people had made. We didn't want them interpreting a statute or a constitution. And so that meant we weren't going to file in a, in a federal court, in a non-common law court. We were going in front of the judges and say, you make the law, you made the law, you or your predecessors made the law, you made all non-human animals as things. Now we're going to uh, try to persuade you that that is an, an anachronism. It's outdated. It's unjust. It's unfair. And you don't have to interpret what anyone else did. You made that law, and you can unmake it, and you can change it so that it's going to be more just. So let me give you uh, a background uh, about this, this idea of things versus persons. Uh, and 
after I finish it, if you want to hear a more coherent presentation, uh, you can look at my TED Talk, which I gave last year on this. Just go to TED.com and just put in my name, and you'll see a 14-minute presentation about things versus persons and what, what the, the Non-Human Rights Project does. So I had this metaphor that I, I sometimes use uh, of, of this wall that, that has long existed for more than 2,000 years uh, between things and persons. So on one side of that wall are the things of the world, and the other side of the wall are the persons of the world. And we try to talk about this when we go in front of judges because uh, I'll bet a lot of you think and a lot of judges think as well that, that humans are persons. All humans are persons and all persons are humans. In, that, uh, in, in other words, humans and persons are synonyms for each other. And so that's the first thing we have to do when we go into a courtroom is disabuse any judges who think that because it's not true today, it wasn't true ever, and it's not ever going to be true. But many judges and people out you know, who aren't judges think that, sin, that, that person and, and uh, uh, humans are the same thing. So they're not. So I, I talk about this wall sometimes, and I talk about it bifurcating uh, human, I'm sorry, things over this side, and persons. Now, what are they? A thing in law is an entity who lacks the capacity for any kind of legal rights. They don't count in law. They're invisible to ju civil judges. They're really slaves of persons. They're the instruments of persons. So on the other side of the wall are persons. Now, persons are entities who count in law. They have the capacity for an infinite number of rights. Remember, things don't have the capacity for any rights at all. Persons have the capacity for an infinite number of, of, of rights. They're very, very visible to judges. They are the masters of the things who are our slaves. And that means uh, if, if I own a pen, I'm the master, the, the pen's the slave. If I own my car, I'm the master, the car's the slave. If I own my dog or a chimpanzee, I'm the master, the chimpanzee or my dog are, are slaves, meaning they, you know, I own them and I can, within broad limits, I really can do whatever I want uh, with them. So you don't want to be a thing if you can avoid it. You want to be a, a person. Now, when we try to kind of make a, a transformation, we, we, if we try to transform non-human animals from being persons to things, things to persons, uh, this is what we're, we're trying to use. So sometimes I also use a metaphor of, of a glass, for example. So if I un undo this, and I assume that, that all the droplets in, in this bottle are, are like an in, almost an infinite number of rights. There are billions and billions of drops, and each drop is a kind of a legal right. So if I just un undo it and pour them out, I pour it all over the floor, Nobody has gotten any rights. All there are just whatever this is. The, the rights are all over the floor. There has to be a container. The cont and, and once you have a, a rights container, then you can begin to pour rights into the container, and the container then has those rights. That container is a person. So what we're trying to do is create a container of rights. And that container is a person, just like I'm a container for a person as a person, and you're a container for a person as well. So right now, 
non-human animals don't have that, we're trying to create it. And once we create it, at that point, we start dropping the rights in one by one. We're bringing one case after another. We say, how about this right? Shouldn't a chimpanzee have this right? Or how about that right? Shouldn't an elephant have that right? Or an orca have that right? Or some other non-human animal have that right? So, but before we can start talking about all the rights that they might have, we have to create their, we have to make them into a rights container. And if we can't do that, then we'll never get anywhere at, at all. Now, on the thing side, are, today are all the non-human animals of the world. On the person side are the, all the human beings of the world. But if you looked at this 200 years ago in, in Western law, certainly in, in Anglo-American law, all the non-human animals of the world were, were also there, but there were also many human beings. There were black slaves. So there may be women or children or the mentally ill. These these didn't, they didn't have rights. Certainly if you were a slave, you were, you were a, a thing who lacked the capacity for all kinds, for, for any rights at all. So even your most fundamental interests went unprotected because you were, not a, you were not a rights holder. You were not a rights container. But the same thing was true for a slave. And in fact, if you look through the literature, you oftentimes see, beginning with, with the Greeks, you oftentimes see the parallel or the analogy between a human slave and, and, a, and, a, and a horse slave or a cow slave. So if you then look at the person side, there, at that time, all the human beings who weren't slaves were on this side. But there were also other entities who were on the person's side who were not human beings. Corporations were there. Ships were there. And a lot of the, of the last civil rights work around the world uh, for the last, say, t uh, 200 years has been to continually, like, bash holes in that wall and feed through all of the human beings who are on, the, on this side of the wall. Slavery has ended. The, the way we treat women as things or children or the mentally ill has ended. And they've slowly been fed through to the other side, and they're all persons. So today, all humans are, are on the person side. All non-humans are, are, are on the thing side. But today, there's many uh, other entities other than even, even ships or corporations. Sometimes I, I, sometimes I talk about Indian law. In, in the uh, pre-independence courts, uh, Indian courts found that a, for example, that a Hindu idol was a thing, that a mosque was a thing. I'm sorry. Thank you, Chair. That a Hindu, that a, a, uh, an idol was a person and a mosque was, was a person. And in the year 2000, the Indian Supreme Court found that the holy books of the Sikh religion was a person. Uh, more to the point, perhaps, in New Zealand five years ago, uh, it, it was declared that, that a certain river, the Wanganui River, was a person. That meant it had the capacity for rights. And then last year, uh, New, New Zealand declared that a certain national park was a person. So we try to explain that to, to courts because when, they, when we say, look, New Zealand last year made a national park a person, that begins to bring home the fact that, it, that, that that's a, it's not true that a human and a person are the exact same thing or, a, or that, that they're synonyms of, for each other. The way a legal system decides whether something is a thing or person is not a biological or taxonomic question. What it is 
It's a matter of public policy. This, each legal system looks at what it values and tries to decide whether entities uh, ought to be valued at, at, as well. And so they look at moral, morals, mor moral principles. They look at, uh, uh, they look at public policy. What's good what's, and what's right, essentially. And these are things that, that the judges talk about and legislators talk about, others talk about. Uh, so it's a much more nuanced and complex issue. But that's the first thing we have to do in, to, to remind the judges that we're not talking biology or taxonomy here. We're talking about really nuanced public policy arguments as well as, as uh, moral principles. So we began with, with the common law. And so once we decided that we wanted the common law, then we had to figure out, well, what kind of, of, of cause of action, as we lawyers would say, do we want to bring in, fr in front of the court? Uh, and what, what's, what is the, is the procedure or, or the, that's going to get us in the court? What, what's the cause of action? For example, if we have a contract and I think you break it, I sue you for breach of contract. Or if you run me down in your car, I sue you for negligence. So these are what lawyers call causes of action. You have to have some kind of recognized cause of action. So we decided to use the common law writ of habeas corpus. Now, habeas corpus uh, is Latin for you have the body. And what it means is that if someone is detaining some, some person, then a third person can come into court and show the judge that someone else is being detained and, the judge, and ask the judge to issue a writ of habeas corpus. That means the writ goes, a piece of paper goes to the person who is detaining the other person saying, I want you to come into court and bring your pers the person you're detaining into court and give us a legally sufficient reason why you can do that, why you can basically treat her like, like a slave. So we want you, we, you have the body, and we want you and, your, and the body that you are detaining to, bring, to come into court. It's a very old cause of action in the Anglo-American Anglo tradition. It goes back in some form to the thir 13th century. And it's become very, very powerful. And that one of the reasons that we chose a common, a common law writ of habeas corpus is that it is really powerful. Everyone recognizes that it's very powerful. In fact, it's so powerful that there are certain kinds of special things that it can do that other sorts of causes of action won't. Uh, for example, when you seek a writ of habeas corpus, the judge will order that the body be brought in virtually immediately in 24 hours, in 48 hours. So your whole, your whole case will last 24 hours or 48 hours or 72 hours. And the reason is because the judges understand that this person's bodily liberty is being violated, or at least maybe, and they want to know whether it's legal or not. So they move in a summary fashion. They move really quickly. So in you come. The second thing is there's something called standing that Western lawyers have had the problem with. And that means that in order to be able to successfully you know, win, to, uh, win a case, amongst the things that you have to do, first of all, the plaintiff, the person who files the lawsuit, has to be a legal person. Only legal persons can file lawsuits, can have the capacity to sue. 
which is one which is why we're trying to make non-human animals one of the reasons legal persons instead of legal things. So they come. So I just forgot what I was saying. That happens every now and then. I'm the, I know person and thing. Of course, that's all I'm, I've been talking about. So let me let me. Uh, ah, yes. Okay. So the person who is is um, filing the lawsuit, the entity has to be a person, and that person has to be the one who has been injured by the defendant. So you have to be a person, and you have to be the person who's been injured by the defendant. So you can see the problem with suing on behalf of non-human animals or anyone who's a legal thing, that a non-human animal has been, might be terribly injured, but isn't a person, so they can't sue. A human being who might want to sue on behalf of, 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 of the non-human animal is a person, but is not the one who's been injured. So, what, so you just can't line, you can't line it up. You need a person who's been injured and, and someone who's a person and who has been injured in order to be able to sue. So the injury is, is called standing. So the, the person who has been injured has standing. If you are run over by a car and you, you choose not to sue, I can't go into, into court and sue on your behalf. The judges will throw me out and say that I lack standing to, to sue. And it's a problem that plagues animal protection lawyers, environmental lawyers, because the environment, you know, trees or, what, or, or river, you know, they also might be injured, as, as only, I guess, as trees and rivers can, can be, but, but, they might, but they're not persons. Um, and so you need to be able to align both of them. However, one of the very few and perhaps almost the only exception to this standing rule is for writs of habeas corpus. And the reason is that when I am being kidnapped, my kidnapper rarely lets me out to go to court to file a writ of habeas corpus against him. So the judges understand that some third party is the one who's going to have to come in front of them and say, hey, Steve is being kidnapped by, you know, by somebody else. So the judges don't, will relax the problem of standing because it does, simply doesn't make any sense. So that's one of the reasons why we chose a writ of habeas corpus, because uh, if we filed other causes of action, we'd be thrown out of court because we weren't the ones who were being injured, the, and the, the chimpanzee was being injured. But with the writ of habeas corpus uh, being an exception to the standing rule, at least we argued that, that it was, then we could actually go into court and say, we want you to issue a writ of habeas corpus on behalf of that chimpanzee who is being detained. And the judge will, may throw us, end up throwing us out on something else, but won't throw us out on the grounds of standing, which is you know, a, a major hurdle that, uh, that every lawyer has, has to get by, the, the problem of, of standing. There's also other things that, that we, <clears throat> we liked about the writ of habeas corpus. Again, if we have a contract and I think you breached it, and I sue you, and I lose, that's the end. I can't sue you again, and again, and again. It's, that's called res judicata. The th basically, the thing's been adjudicated. The thing's been settled. You got your one shot. Next case, I don't want to hear from you again. The writ of habeas corpus ha is, that does not have that as a requirement. Res judicata does not apply normally to writs of habeas corpus. And the reason is, is that the, the courts see 
two things. One of them is that, is that you, there are fundamental liberties at stake here. So we don't want you to just file and, and, and lose immediately, and then that means, what, you're a slave for the rest of your life? They, they want you to be able to, to come in again and again, especially if you think you have some sort of a chance to win. And the, the, and the other idea is that if you're being detained against your will, like every day is really a new wrong against you. And so they'll let you come in again and again. We really wanted to do that because we understood that we're bringing a lawsuit on behalf of a non-human animal. It turned out to be a chimpanzee. And, there, and we were likely to make errors in how we did it because no one had ever done it before. We're not sure what's going to work. The judges, we thought, were likely to make errors when they decided our cases because they may have no idea what they're doing. They've never thought about it. Generally, everybody in the courtroom might be making lots of mistakes. So... The judges still rule, though, and we felt that what was the likely outcome was that the judges, if they were unsure which they were going to be, they'd rule against us. So we wanted to be able to lose, sit back and see why we lost, try to fix it, and then sue again. And then sue again. We, we, we found one case in the state of New York in which one gentleman had been in jail and had filed, sought four writs of habeas corpus, and on the fifth time, he won, and he was released from jail. So we didn't know if we were going to be filing five times, but we thought we'd want to be do it again and again. Another good thing about the writ of habeas corpus was there's no, at least in the state of New York, was there was a venue provision, which means, or, there, or actually there's no venue provision. And what, what that means is, venue means like, where in the state of New York must you file suit? So, often, so oftentimes there'll be something called venue, which tells the lawyer where you can file suit. There really isn't one for a writ of habeas corpus, which means if we could file suit and we could lose, and we'd say, okay, we're going to file suit again, and we really don't like this judge. We're going to file suit like five or 300 miles away in another part of New York, and, uh, which is exactly what, what we did. Uh, so we can file suit again and again, and we can also uh, get out of places we don't want to be and, and try to, as we're trying to figure out you know, where we might want, want to be. There are other reasons why a writ of habeas corpus is great, but it, it's, it's really great. So that's why we sought a common law writ of habeas corpus. And it was on behalf of a chimpanzee. Now, we spent a long time trying to, trying to figure out what non-human animals were going to be our first plaintiffs. And even before the Non-Human Rights Project was really moving on this, I was writing law review articles, I was writing books where I... I talked about this, and part of this was, was, um, was inter intertwined with, with uh, what the arguments were that we were going to make to judges about why, say, a chimpanzee ought to be a legal, a legal person. Because once we bring a, a writ of habeas corpus in, we were there ask, asking the judge to then uh, order the chimpanzee released and make, you know... Um, characterize the chimpanzee as, as a person. So once we have the, the writ of habeas corpus in front of the judge, what are the arguments that we're going to make that are going to persuade the judge that our non-human animal, a, a chimpanzee, ought to be released? And so we looked at what the judges value 
in all of the various jurisdictions that we looked at. In fact, we looked at over a period of seven years, we looked at the law of all 50 American states and the District of Columbia and the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico and, and 20 English-speaking countries, England and Australia and India, New Zealand, other English-speaking countries, because we wanted to bring a common law uh, case. And we tried to understand um, what jurisdiction might be the very best one for, for us to, to begin filing in. And we came up with about 60 different questions, and we researched them all in all of these 70 or 80 jurisdictions. At one point, I was um, supervising 70 people from around the, uh, the world who were doing research. And uh, one of the things that we wanted to do was not come up with our own legal ideas, but we wanted to find out what the judges in each of the jurisdictions say they valued through their judicial opinions. So we wouldn't tell them what they ought to value. We're going to look at what they already say they value, and then we're going to make our arguments in terms of what they say that they value. We'll tell the judges, we see you value X, we agree with X, and now, if you apply X, our non-human animal you know, ought, ought to be a person, at least for, for the purposes of a writ of, of habeas corpus. And so, at the end of the seven years, we then put all of them into a hierarchy and decided that, that we really liked the state of New York. We liked the, the, the way they viewed habeas corpus, and we, li we liked um, lots of other things as well. Um, but one of the things that we we looked at was what is it that the judges in the state of New York say that they value most of all? Because if we could, we would then argue to them in those exact same terms that if you value whatever you say, then you should find in our favor. And <clears throat> there were several things. Well, one of them was fundamentally liberty, the idea of liberty. And the other one was the idea of, of equality. They would come back again and again and say how much they valued liberty and equality. Now, a liberty right is the kind of right to which you, someone might be entitled to because of what characteristics you have, who you are. And the important thing is that, is that you are looked at for who you are, what your characteristics are, without comparing you to anybody else. So you'd be entitled to that right irrespective of whether anyone else in the world had it. That's a liberty right. It's a non-comparative liberty right. On the other hand, equality is what's called a comparative right. So what you argue is that I am like someone else who has that right in a relevant way. Because, as I tell my students, all of us are infinitely similar to each other and infinitely different from each other. And so our, our job would be to try to persuade the court that, that a chimpanzee, uh, at least for purpose of habeas corpus, is, is, is similar in a relevant way to a human being who ha already has the right to a writ of habeas corpus. And of course, the argument on the other side is that, hey, judge, there's a dissimilarity going on here, and that is the fact that their client's a chimpanzee. And so that should be enough to, so that they should not be able to, to have the same right as a human being because they're not a human being. And we would say, nobody accepts that sort of argument. Oh, we're asking that you look at more fundamental kinds of arguments, uh, at more fundamental kinds of values and principles that you say you hold. So the liberty 
issue in New York. The, 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 the quality that's, that, the, that the judges seem to embrace most tightly was the idea of autonomy. That if you read cases, case after case over many years, the courts talk about how much they value autonomy. The idea that you should be able to freely choose how you want to live your life. And under many circumstances, the, the courts would come down on the side of autonomy. The state could not abridge your autonomy, or, or a private person could not abridge your autonomy, except in very certain, certain specific constrained ways. And we were particularly interested in the cases that had been coming down since the 1980s, where you might have someone who goes to a hospital in the state of New York, and they require emergency surgery or medication, and they say, I don't want the surgery, I don't want the medication, I prefer to die. So the, the hospitals then go to the court and say, this patient of ours needs emergency surgery or needs certain kinds of medication, and if we don't get it, she's going to die. Would you override her free choice, override her autonomy, and order us to, to be able to bring her into emergency surgery over her protests or forced her to take certain kinds of medications over her protests. And the courts of the state of New York would say, no, we're not going to do that because we value her autonomy more than we value her life. That if she doesn't want to live, that's her business. And, that, and, that, and as an autonomous being, she can do that. So those sorts of statements, which we saw in many, many cases, told us that autonomy seemed to be a supreme common law value. In other words, the, the judges weren't looking at what the legislatures were saying. They're saying over the, over the decades or hundreds of years in the state of New York and throughout the Anglo-American system, that, that autonomy was something that was really, really important kind of at the, at the center of, of what the, at least the citizens of New York believe was important. So that was our liberty right. This, the, how about the equality right? We did a similar sort of, 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 of thing. We argued that usually courts, when they're trying to look at equality, have cases where someone, where a statute's been passed and someone comes in and says, it's unfair. My equality has been violated. Someone else is being treated better than I am. And the courts will, or I'm treated, being treated worse than they are. The courts will then look at that and try to figure out whether or not the legislature has violated their equality. And one of the fundamental things, kind of at, at, the, at, at the very base of this, is that the courts will allow the statute to stay if it is a rational, a, a rational regulation of, of a... Uh, a rational means to a legitimate end. So it has really two things that have to be done. The, the court would want to know, the statute I'm looking at that discriminates against you, is it a rational means to a legitimate end? And we argue that there is no legitimate end, in, no, there's no legitimate purpose in the state being able to imprison as a slave an autonomous being. And all the while, we're intending to prove that our chimpanzee, say, is an autonomous being. And there's another United States Supreme Court case in which the court said that you can't take some, all of someone's rights away because they have of a single characteristic that, may, that, that they may have, which the state of Colorado had tried to do a long, 25 years ago, 
with, with respect to being gay. The court struck that down. And they said, you can't just say, if you're gay, you don't have any rights. You can't look at a single characteristic. And we're saying, that's what's going on here. That our chimpanzee, we're going to prove to you, is an extraordinary being. And you can't just say he's a chimpanzee and not give him any rights just because he's a chimpanzee when we were showing all these other characteristics that, that, that he has. So that would also be a violation of equality. So those are the kinds of arguments that we want to make to the court once the writ of habeas corpus allows us to come into the court. Now, that brings us as part of why we're choosing a chimpanzee. So we have to choose a, a being who is autonomous because when lawyers go into court, you got to prove you have to argue over the law and then you have to argue over the facts. So we spent years and years trying to develop legal principles and we're asking the judge now to, to uh, say, to agree with us that autonomy is a sufficient, though we don't argue that it's a necessary condition, we argue it's a sufficient condition, that if a being is autonomous, she should have certain, per, she should have personhood and certain kinds of, of, of rights. So assuming that, that we can persuade the court as a matter of liberty, as a matter of equality, that that's true, now we have to go to the fact part and, and make sure that our non-human animal client is an autonomous being. And so that meant we had to look at a whole series of non-human animals to, to try to figure out what, as Charles, Charles said, what's the science behind that? What, you know, what can we prove? You know, lawyers only care about what we can prove. If we can't prove it, then we kind of ignore it because it really doesn't matter because we, because we, we can't use it in, in a courtroom. And, and being the plaintiff in the case, we have the burden of proving our suit. And if we can't do it, then we will lose. So we looked at elephants, we, and we looked, we looked at, all, at elephants, at, at, at whales, at, at, at dolphins, at gorillas, at orangutans, and chimpanzees, and uh, other, other animals as well. And we saw that, though, that they tended to be autonomous, that we thought there was a lot of scientific evidence that these beings, all four species of great apes, chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, and orangutans, both species of elephants, African and Indian and whales and dolphins, especially um, orcas, that they were, we thought, autonomous beings that, and that we could prove that they were. We thought that the most research had been done, that the case was strongest with respect to chimpanzees. So in order to affirm that, we began to connect with uh, chimpanzee cognition experts for, from around the world, tell them what we're doing and say, will you help us? Will you file affidavits we can use in our case in the state of New York? So we went to uh, chimpanzee cognition experts in, in, in Japan who signed on, in, in Germany, in Sweden, in England, in, in uh, Scotland, uh, in, in the United States, and they would file affidavits. We ultimately filed about 100 pages of affidavits from all of these experts in which they, the, the whole purpose was to prove to the judge that, these, that, that chimpanzees were autonomous beings. Remember, autonomy meaning that they're not cabined by instinct. They actually can, can make free choices. They, they, they're cognitively complex enough so that they can make free choices. Now, we don't argue that they can decide whether they should have surgery or not or medication or not. They're not that cognitively complex. Well, actually, they may be, but we're not prepared to argue that. Uh, but what, what we're arguing is that at least with respect to putting them in like chimpanzee prison, 
that they can decide whether they wish to be in, in, a, in a jail or whether they wish to live in, 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 in the wild or the, if, if they wish to live in a sanctuary. In fact, we were certain that unless you were like a mentally ill chimpanzee, you were not going to want to live in a cage, you were going to want to live in a sanctuary. And indeed, we actually found a sanctuary in, in the United States called Save the Chimps, which uh, is made up of 13 uh, three to five acre islands in South Florida, on, uh, and 24 chimpanzees live on each of the islands. So we wanted to then get the judges to move the four chimpanzees that we had, we had sued on, move them out of the cages that they were in, and get them on the islands so they could spend the rest of their life there. Uh, we, because we thought that, we, and we, we could argue to the judge, that uh, while it wasn't putting them in the jungle, uh, which we thought we could not do, uh, they'd never seen, seen the jungle before, and the, the couple times that people had tried to do that ended really badly for the chimpanzee. So we, 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 we argued that, that Save the Chimps in, in the United States was a place that would give a chimpanzee the most autonomy that could be found in North America. So that was really the only place that they could be, could be put. So, in short, so that, that's really the, the arguments that, that, that were in the background of all of our work. So then that brings us up to December of 2013 and we begin to file our lawsuits. Now the New, New York State has a, a uh, statute that, that gives you the procedure for, for filing a writ of habeas corpus. And you can either seek a writ of habeas corpus, which would mean that you'd have to bring the chimpanzee into the courtroom, which we did not want to do. Uh, I, I love chimpanzees, but I don't want to be in, have them in the courtroom. Uh, in fact, I don't even want to be in the same cage with them. Uh, I, uh, and so they're, they're really, really strong. Really, really, six, uh, one, one chimpanzee has the strength of six human men. So they are really strong folks. When I tracked them in the wild, where you and Charles and I were in the same place, I remember I was standing on a path and a band of chimpanzees come in front of me and the anthropologist I'm with says, put your eyes down, don't, you know, look humble. And I thought, I feel humble. He can like tear my arm off. <laughs> so we don't want a chimpanzee in the court. Also, courtrooms are very tense places for human beings. They're very tense places for chimpanzees or any other non-human animals. Uh, so who knows how that chimpanzee would react. And if we have a screaming, you know, acting out, displaying chimpanzee, that's not going to be really uh, going to make a sympathetic picture for the judge. So we, we, we filed instead what's called an ask for an order to show cause. And the order to show cause means that we bring in the jailer, but we leave the detained chimpanzee there. So that's what we decided to do. And you can go in into court either by giving the other side notice that you're doing that or by going in what's called ex parte, just going in without giving the other side notice. So we decided we'd go in without giving the other side notice. And we expected that we would hand all of our papers in, which were like about this, this high for each, each case, and that we would simply stand there and the judge would, would see the papers and say, get, you know, get out of here, and write, get out of here, and then send them back. Then we never would even see a judge. You know, to our surprise, uh, two of the first three judges that we went in front of said, hey, come on in, let's really talk about this. Uh, one, you know, one of them without reading anything we had done. Um, 
uh, which made for kind of a hard argument. He had no idea what we were talking about. But his heart was in the right place. In fact, he finally said, it was on behalf of Tommy, he said, I feel really terrible for Tommy. I'll do anything I can to get Tommy out except grant a writ of habeas corpus because I'm not going to say Tommy's a person. And the second, second judge who went to hold a, held a hearing said, what a great argument, but I'm not going to be the first to take this leap of faith, he said. So we said, fine, we understood that. The third judge we went to um, with respect to Hercules and Leo was what we had thought all the judges were going to do. You know, I wouldn't know him if he ran me over. The papers went in, he came out saying, get out of here. So, um, so we understood that, and because another reason that we'd chosen rid of habeas corpus in New York is that you could appeal. Because some states don't allow you to appeal a denial of a writ of habeas corpus, which we didn't want. We wanted to bring the arguments up to the appellate courts in the state of New York. So we then began, began the process of appealing, and that's when things got you know, really weird. Um, so we would begin to, to uh, appeal in each of the three. We ended up losing all three appeals on completely different grounds, None of the judges acknowledged any other judges had ever ruled, and none of them agreed with what they had ever said. So we lost on three separate grounds with no one acknowledging that anybody had ever ruled in any other way. And as I, I think I was saying today, it's like playing, playing whack-a-mole. Like you, you'd say, okay, we lost here. We're going to make sure we don't do that again. They say, oh, yeah, well, we, we're, now you're going to lose for this reason. Say, so, okay, we go, now you're going to lose for a third reason. And so we're trying to figure out, you know, why we're losing and why, and, and the arguments that the reasons we're losing are really not very good. Uh, in fact, we think they're just flat out wrong. We understand that the, some of the judges don't want us to win because judges are kind of conservative folks, but the arguments that they're making are not very good. And if you, those who you saw the film last night might recall the chief judge of the first appellate court I went into I'd say it's fair that if she could have, she would have leaped over the bench and, and strangled me. Uh, I think she was, mean, she was upset enough at me. Um, uh, but we, we continued uh, on after we saw that, with that we had lost, and we said, okay, this is why we've lost all these various reasons. So what we're going to do now is we're going to file, we're going to start again and file new suits. And that's what we did. We had filed suit in Long Island. We'd filed in, in middle of New York and western part of New York. And now uh, we, there were four intermediate appellate courts in New York. We had, had now appealed in three of them. And, and we then decided the only one we hadn't been in was New York City. So we filed a lawsuit in New York City on behalf of Hercules and Leo. And that did it. That for, so for the first time, that judge issued the writ of habeas corpus on behalf of a non-human animal, ordered Stony Brook to come in and tell the judge and the whole world why they thought they could imprison two chimpanzees. And which is what, that's the fight that we'd been picking for a long time, and now we got, got to pick it. And we got to have that, that huge, you know, very well-publicized fight. And those of you who saw the film last night, you know, saw parts of, of, the, of the arguments. And the, the end of that case was, we lost, but it was, it was on, it was actually on a fourth reason, but, uh, uh, we lost after the judge found in our favor on everything that she possibly could. The reason we lost is that she felt on one issue that she was bound by what another appellate court had, had said, even though we argued she wasn't. So she ended up by saying, essentially, I'd really like to rule in your favor, but I think I'm really bound by another court. And so uh, uh, she says, quote, for now, unquote, 
I dismiss your writ, writ of habeas corpus. So we were extraordinarily encouraged by the fact that we had won all of the little battles that we had been fighting. We just, lost, we, we, we just didn't win the very last battle because the judge felt she wasn't able to give that to us. And so actually, I am a, I'm arguing a week from tomorrow in the appellate court in Manhattan uh, as to whether that judge really is bound, we argue she's not, and, and ask them to send the case back to her saying, hey, you're, you're not bound. And then we're, we hope to go back in and, and then finish arguing, and, and hope, we, we hope to be able to win there. We're also beginning to uh, file suit on behalf of elephants, on behalf of orcas, uh, on behalf of other, other chimpanzees, and we're also beginning to uh, hold, you know, hold um, or work, work with um, legal groups in 11 other countries, you know, in, in Europe, in Australia, uh, in um, South America. Uh, I think those are the only three continents we're working on right now. Uh, and we try to work with them so that they too can begin the process of being able to persuade their parliaments or, and or persuade their courts that non-human animals, at least some, ought to be able to be legal persons with certain kinds of rights. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.